We spent the last many weeks during our teaching time exploring the biblical story of kingdom come. We've seen that when God created the universe, he didn't just produce matter, he founded a kingdom. We've also seen that humans, along with some other created beings, rebelled against God's kingdom. Human history is the long story of the futile effort to rebel against God, to rule without being ruled. And as such, it's a tragedy. But it's also the story of the God who doesn't give up, who does what is right and good. And as such, it's a comedy. God has promised, and the Bible clearly teaches, a happy ending for all who want God to be God and give up trying to take his place. That is, for all those who trust in Jesus Christ. So the Bible tells a story that's both a tragedy, a heart-rending, sea-of-tears-producing, doleful tragedy, and a comedy, a hilarious, laugh-until-you-cry, jubilant comedy, which it is for you, depends entirely on where you've taken your stand when you look at it. If you stand on faith in Jesus Christ, it's a happy ending, all things work together for good comedy. If you stand on faith in anything else, including yourself, it's a bleak and hopelessly forlorn tragedy. You get to decide which it will be in your life. Now, we've seen that the kingdom story runs throughout the Old Testament and that some of the people of Israel, call them the watchers, never gave up waiting for their king to come. At the beginning of the New Testament period, there were still people watching for the promised king to appear. The Jewish historian Josephus, who was born just a few years after Jesus died, wrote that the Jews believed that about that time, one from their own country should become governor of the habitable earth. So that was the belief in Israel. But here's something remarkable. It wasn't just people inside Israel who were expecting a king to come from Israel. People outside, people who weren't even Jews, had somehow come to the same conclusion. The late first century Roman historian Suetonius wrote, there had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. Another historian, Tacitus, who was a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, agreed. There was a firm persuasion, he wrote, that at this very time, the time of the beginning of the New Testament, the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire universal empire. That the belief had spread around the Mediterranean that Judea would acquire universal empire. Judea is a place on the outskirts of the empire about the size of Branch and Hillsdale counties combined. Just a little tiny place in a backwater part of the empire that that belief had spread that from there would arise a ruler over the world is remarkable. What could account for that? It might be, and indeed I think it was, that God was preparing the people of the world for the arrival of his son. St. Paul writes that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. 600 years 
after the last king of Judah was deposed, and almost a millennium after the great kingdom preview of King David's era, the fulfillment of the times had arrived. Historians often point out ways in which this was true, that the fullness of time had come. Certainly this firm persuasion that a universal ruler was to come from Judea was a sign that the fullness of the time had arrived. But there's more. See, before the conquest of Alexander the Great, there was no single language that people around the world could understand. So the news about the coming of the great king would have been impossible to share between cultures. But after Alexander, the world spoke Greek, which just happens to be the language that the New Testament was written in. But that's not all. Before the Roman expansion under Julius Caesar, travel was dangerous and difficult. But Rome connected the world by building roads from Western Europe all the way to Central Asia. And wherever Roman roads were built, Roman troops kept peace. In previous times, people traveled as little as possible. Ancient people hated to travel because roads were few and the roads that existed were haunted by bands of robbers. But in the first century, really for the first time ever, common people could travel internationally, which meant that the good news of the king could be carried around the world. Now let's look at our scripture text. We're going to Bethlehem this morning. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, Report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they'd seen in the east went ahead of them till it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Most of us have been familiar with this story for most of our lives. But now, after spending so much time in the Old Testament story of kingdom come, I think we might have a fresh appreciation for what's happening here. We might see it at least a little through first century eyes. In verse 1, Matthew locates this story in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a small village a few miles outside of Jerusalem. I mean, Bethlehem was as close to Jerusalem as we are to Coldwater, to the Four Corners. Bethlehem, the town, never appears again in the New Testament after the birth stories of Jesus. As far as we know, he never returned to Bethlehem after his early childhood. And yet Bethlehem is important to the story of kingdom come. 
In the Old Testament book of Ruth, a woman named Naomi came from Bethlehem. Her family left the country during a famine to find work, to find food. But after her husband and both her sons died, she returned to Bethlehem with one of her daughters-in-law. That daughter-in-law, Ruth, was eventually married to a man from Bethlehem and had a son. That son had a son, and his name was David. And he was the king of Israel to whom God promised an everlasting throne. Now, a thousand years after David's birth, there was another birth in little Bethlehem, and the watchers remembered. They remembered the words of God's spokesman, Micah. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who is to be ruler over Israel, whose origins are of old from ancient times. Also in verse 1, Matthew refers to the tyrant Herod, whom the Roman emperor had made governor of Judea and upon whom the Senate had conferred the title King of the Jews. Herod was not from David's royal line. In fact, he wasn't really Jewish. He was an Edomite who had married a Jewish woman. Like others who claimed the title king, he wanted to rule, but he didn't want to be ruled. In that same verse, Matthew introduces us to the Magi, that the King James calls the wise men. The Magi originally were a tribal group living in modern-day Iran. The oldest reference to them, which goes back to 6th century B.C., the oldest reference to them is as rebels against the Persian crown in a failed coup attempt. After that, they appear again, but now as not rebels, but as priests and as teachers, and still later as practitioners of the magic arts. We get our word magic from this word magi. When the king of Armenia went to pay homage to the emperor Nero, he took magi with him. Uh, Seneca says that magi sacrificed to the memory of Plato at Athens. They were apparently great travelers. They were also astrologers, which in a world that believed that destiny was guided by the stars gave them a certain credibility. In light of the fact that people from across the empire were expecting a world ruler to arise from tiny Judea, we can understand why the Magi headed for Jerusalem when they saw the star. They read stars. They understood the appearance of this particular star to mean a king had been born and were convinced that Judea was the place to find him. Now, we don't know exactly what they saw. I mean, all kinds of suggestions have been made over the years. Some people have said it was Halley's Comet, which blazed across the sky in 10 BC. That was probably a little early. Uh, there was a brilliant conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter that happened numerous times in 7 BC. That would have been just about the right time. See, Jesus wasn't born in AD 1. Um, the Julian calendar got it wrong. Herod died in 4 BC, and Herod was still alive when Jesus was born. So the calendar was wrong, so you got to move back a few years in your thinking. Uh, there was a heliacal rising of Sirius about this time as well. Maybe that's what they saw. We don't know. Maybe God put a brand new star in the sky. Totally miraculous. Who knows? But what's interesting to me is that God understood the language that these magi spoke. 
and used it to communicate to them. He knows more about the heavens than anybody. So since they spoke the language of stars and planetary alignments, that's how he addressed them. The point is that God is fluent in almost every language you can imagine. So he can speak to people in ways they can understand. If, for example, you speak stars, you're an astronomer, God will speak to you in the cadence of pulsars. If you speak life sciences, you're a biologist, God will carry on a conversation with you through nucleotides and cellular mitosis. If you speak numbers, God will converse with you in mathematics. If you speak nature, God will call you through the wind and the trees. If you speak cars, Mopar engines and Ford trucks, God even speaks that language, and he'll speak to you through carburetors and horsepower. He knows how to talk to you. The only language God will not speak is the language of lies and half-truths, which is the only language some people know, so they never hear him speak. But otherwise... He will come to you in ways you understand. Christmas is the ultimate example of that. God came to us in flesh and blood because it's the only way we could ever hear the word of love and hope he was speaking to us. I have no doubt that when the Magi showed up in Jerusalem, they thought they would find a city celebrating the birth of her new king whom they certainly would have expected to be the son of the reigning king. How confusing it must have been to them to find Jerusalem operating as if nothing unusual had happened. They went around asking where they could find the one born king of the Jews, but no one seemed to have any idea what they were talking about. It must have astounded them. But the arrival of a caravan of magi attracted attention. It was, it was bound to do including the attention of King Herod. When he heard that they were asking about one born king of the Jews, he panicked. See, Herod was not born king of the Jews, and everyone knew it. A born king, the real king, was Herod's worst nightmare, a threat to him, to his dominion. Verse 3 says that when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. The word translated disturbed is a picturesque one, meaning stirred or shaken. Herod was shaken, not stirred. And when Herod shook, Jerusalem trembled. If King Herod was shaken, bad things were about to happen. Now we need a little background on Herod to understand this. Had he lived today, he certainly would have been diagnosed with serious mental illness. As he grew old, older, he suffered overwhelming paranoia. He saw everyone as a potential usurper of his throne. Over a period of years, he had his wife, Miriam, put to death. She was the first one, woman that he loved with this crazy love, suspected that she had been unfaithful to him and had her put to death. Then her mother he put to death. Then he had three of his sons, whom he suspected of plotting his overthrow, put to death. Caesar once said of Herod that it was safer to be his pig, in, in Greek that's his hus, than to be his son, his huias. His pigs were less likely to be butchered than his sons. Near the end of his life, when Herod realized he was dying, 
He ordered the arrest of 70 of Jerusalem's leading citizens and commanded his lieutenants to execute them all at the moment he expired because he said he wanted there to be tears at his death and he knew no one was going to cry for him. That was Herod, king of the Jews. He was a monster. When he heard that a king from the true royal line had been born, his paranoia flared uncontrollably. But at the same time, he retained his cleverness. He called together, this is verse 4, all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, and he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Notice he asked where the Christ, Israel's promised Savior, was to be born. That he phrased it that way means he knew exactly what he was doing. He was planning to fight against God himself by attacking and destroying his Messiah. He would fight God before he would give up his position and his power. Now, I said Herod was a monster, but the truth is we are all faced with the same choice he faced. We can resist God's rule over us, over our dominions, our lives. We can submit or we can resist. Many people resist. They don't look like monsters. They just look like regular people. But put them in Herod's place, and some of them would have done exactly what he did. When Herod learned that it was prophesied that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem, he secretly called the Magi, this is verse 7, and found out the exact time the star had appeared. He told them to make a careful search and report back to him. By the way, there's an emphasis on the word careful in Greek, akribos. Go and search very carefully. Make sure you find him. And come back and tell me so that I can go and pay homage to this born king of Israel. But he had a very different plan in mind. Not suspecting his real motives, the Magi told Herod when the star had appeared two years earlier. Which means that it took them two years to understand the significance of the star, to raise the funds necessary to put together an expedition, and to travel by caravan from Iran to Judea. Now, we don't know if God caused the star to appear two years before Jesus was born, so that the Magi showed up on the day of his birth, or if the star appeared on the night of his birth and the Magi showed up two years later. The latter seems more likely for two reasons, neither of which is conclusive, but together carry some weight. First, whereas on the night of his birth, the shepherds found him in a place where animals were kept, Matthew clearly tells us that when the Magi came, this is verse 11, they found him and his family staying in a house. Secondly, and more significant, I think, while Luke calls Jesus a baby, a brephos in Greek, at the time of the shepherd's visit, Matthew uses a different Greek word, one that means child, to describe Jesus at the time of the Magi's arrival. So I'm taking it that two years have passed, but we can't be sure. Now, we can imagine, I think inadequately, but we can imagine what they might have felt when they arrived at the house where the child was. On the one hand, it wasn't at all what they had expected. They thought the king of the Jews would be born in a palace surrounded by servants and soldiers and clothed in silk and adored by everyone. Instead, they found him in a modest house attended by his teenaged peasant mother. Was that any way for Israel to welcome her king? 
Yet after two years of planning, seeking, getting lost, getting found, the moment they finally laid their eyes on the one must have been momentous for them. The text says that they bowed down and worshipped him and then presented him their gifts. Worship always involves the presentation of a gift, principally the gift of our lives to God for his service. If we don't get to that point, we don't worship. But the gifts of praise and other offerings are presented as well. The Magi brought three different gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That seems a rather odd choice to me. I mean, gold makes sense. It was the proper gift for a king. But frankincense was an incense used in the worship of a god. And myrrh, myrrh's the strangest gift of all. It was a spice used, among other things, to prepare a body for burial. And yet, how apropos these three gifts. Gold for a king. Incense for a god. For the god. And myrrh for one destined to die for the sins of the world. And now we see something that we've seen before in this study, but never with such clarity. The clash of kingdoms. The kingdom come is in conflict with the kingdoms here. Until we understand that, we'll never make sense of what's happening in the world or even in our own lives. God's kingdom and our kingdoms are on a collision course. King Herod imagined that he could avoid the collision that his kingdom could somehow defeat the kingdom of God, but he was wrong. When the Magi didn't return to him, Herod was furious and ordered his soldiers to conduct a search of Bethlehem. This is why he wanted to know when the star first appeared, to conduct a search of Bethlehem and its vicinity for every male child two years and under. And when they found them, they were to kill them there in cold blood. We don't know how many children lost their lives. But in some sense, those children, it's uh, wonderful to think about. In some sense, those children died as substitutes for the Savior, as a portent, perhaps, of the Savior who would die as substitutes for them. Herod tried to defeat God's king and his kingdom. But his bloody rage was in vain. His kingdom could not possibly win in a conflict with God's great kingdom. He was overmatched in every way, in raw power, in intelligence capabilities, in advanced planning, in everything. Herod may have died thinking that he had disposed of his rival. But don't miss the point that whatever else he did, he died. His kingdom ran headlong into the might and majesty of the kingdom of God. I speak of the might and majesty of the kingdom of God. And those are the right words to use when describing it. But the birth of a baby to a poor and temporarily homeless family seems like anything but might and majesty. And here's another truth that we learn from the story of Christmas. The kingdom of God works undercover. For the time being. It comes to us. In a baby. Rather than an army. 
for the time being. It's like a mustard seed, easily ignored and almost unseen. It's like hidden treasure. It's like yeast hidden in a lump of dough, unseen but always at work and always increasing. It's like a sown field which grows night and day without fanfare but with unstoppable power. It's not generally loud or combative. The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, Jesus once said, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. For the time being, the kingdom comes in babies and is exhibited in the lives of ordinary people. For now it defies careful observation, but it will not always be so. The one who came as a baby and could not find room in the inn, the one who came as a teacher and found no place to lay his head, the one who came as a savior and was forced to lay his head on a cross will come as a king. You see, Bethlehem is only phase one of Operation Kingdom Come. We're still awaiting phase two, though not perhaps for long. Now, let me wrap this up with two observations. First, when the true king arrived, he was surrounded by people of different types. There were those who, like Herod, didn't want him to exist and would prevent his existence if they could. There were those who, like the priests and teachers of the law, knew about him, but didn't apply what they knew to their lives. They were religious, but being religious has never been the important thing. As religious as they were, they couldn't escape the gravitational pull of their own busy lives in order to act on the truth they already knew. They didn't even go five miles to see the one they thought was the Messiah of God. Then there were the shepherds. The shepherds were the blue-collar workers of the first century. And they were open enough to what they saw and heard to check it out for themselves. And finally, there were the Magi, people who belonged to another religion, who were just about the last people on earth you would expect to see worshiping the Christ. But they did, and at great cost to themselves. I think most people and most of us fit into one of those categories today. Those who reject Christ and the kingdom for which he stands, those who ignore Christ and don't care what he stands for, and those who come looking for him in the hope that he'll show them the way of life. Second observation. Christmas is a mercy. When the Almighty came among us, it was not with irresistible force and a campaign of shock and awe. He came in a manner that was completely resistible. We can receive him or we can reject him. We can submit our lives and our kingdoms to him. Or like Herod, we can resist and try to hold on to our position and power to rule our own lives without God's interference. The thing we need to know is that God doesn't intend and has never intended to take away our position and power to rule our own lives. In fact, the only way to fully experience that position and power is to submit it to him. Have you ever seen people who are desperate to control their lives but seem incapable of doing so? The paradox is that when they give their lives to God, their own control doesn't diminish, it increases. 
George Matheson caught this idea beautifully in the 19th century hymn, Make Me a Captive Lord. Make me a captive Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conqueror be. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong will be my hand. Even those exceptional people who manage to keep control over everything can't do so forever. Death will rip control from their hands. They will lose control of their blood pressure, of their bladder, of their minds, of their lives. But if they've given themselves over to God, not even death will keep them from reigning with Christ. So I ask you, on this Christmas Sunday, have you received Christ, your teacher, your savior, your master? Have you given your life to him? No one will force you to do so, least of all him. No one can stop you from doing so with the exception of yourself. To receive him as a rebirth, a conversion, the beginning of a new life that will last forever. To fail to do so To fail to receive him is more of the same life, a life that will grow weary and old even before death takes you. This Christmas you can have the best gift you'll ever receive, a better life, an endless life. And it comes packaged in a person, Jesus pray. Lord, there's majesty and might in your kingdom, but there's also mystery. We can only see the outsides of it now. but we see enough to tell you thank you. Thank you for sending your son, for coming to us and the baby laid in a manger, for dying for us as the man on the cross, for rising as our King and Savior forever. Thank you.